Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome I'm excited to be here, and excited for us to get to know each other a little better in the coming weeks, to share some stories, and hopefully leave you with a restless night's sleep from time to time. We've got a long journey north ahead of us, but first, we've got a few things to pack. I've had a little while to prepare for being here with you now. To find my way to the hearth, cozy up to the fire, and share some dark and sinister tales with you. But sitting here now, I can tell you this feels like a very big chair to fill. There's a lot of history in its worn cushions. History that I'd very much like to take this episode to acknowledge. I won't go into great detail. If you're interested in a deeper look behind the curtain of the podcast and haven't yet listened to the brief retrospective Stephen posted last week, I highly encourage it. But I do owe an incredible debt of gratitude to the people who've made and continue to make this podcast possible, both as your new host and as a loyal longtime listener myself. Two incredible talents have been the voice of Tales to Terrify before me with other passionate people behind the scenes, driving the creation of the podcast every week. I wouldn't be here sharing these frightful tales with you if it wasn't for each and every one of them, not to mention the support of you, our constant listeners. I never knew Larry personally. I discovered Tales to Terrify somewhere around episode 60 and quickly added it to my handful of regular listens. I devoured the back catalog and toyed with the idea of becoming a narrator for a long time before I worked up the nerve. But by the time I did, Larry was gone. I might never have connected with Larry one-on-one, -on -one, but after inviting him into my earbuds week after week, it felt like losing a friend. 
When Stephen picked up the reins during Larry's illness and seized them more firmly after his passing, it was a gentle salve to the soul to have someone familiar to carry on, someone whom Larry clearly appreciated, trusted, and respected. During the last four and a half years, Stephen has done a phenomenal job of keeping the dark and disturbing spirit of Tales to Terrify alive while infusing it with his own personality and style. The bar's been set high, and, as I've said, I've got a very big chair to fill. But enough waxing poetic. You're here for fiction, and fiction you shall have. We have two classic tales to mark the occasion tonight, narrated by each of my predecessors. Nathaniel Hawthorne was an American novelist, dark romantic, and short story writer. He was born in 1804 in Salem, Massachusetts, to Nathaniel Hawthorne and the former Elizabeth Clark Manning. Now, if the names Salem and Hawthorne triggered a connection for you, you'd be right in surmising the familial connection with John Hawthorne, the only judge involved in the Salem witch trials who never repented of his actions. Nathaniel added the W to his name, making it Hawthorne for the exact purpose of hiding this relation. Much of Hawthorne's writing centers on New England, often featuring moral allegories with a Puritan inspiration. His fiction works of dark romanticism often center on the inherent evil and sin of humanity. As a result, his works frequently have moral messages and deep psychological complexity. His published works include novels, short stories, and, perhaps most horrifying of all, a biography of his college friend, Franklin Pierce, the 14th President of the United States. Children of the Night, please join me for a classic reading of Nathaniel Hawthorne's Young Goodman Brown, which originally aired on Tales to Terrify, Episode 136. Young Goodman Brown came forth at sunset into the street at Salem Village, put his head back after crossing the threshold to exchange a parting kiss with his young wife, and Faith, as the wife was aptly named, thrust her own pretty head into the street, letting the wind play with the pink ribbons of her cap, while she called to Goodman Brown. "'Dearest heart,' whispered she softly, and rather sadly, when her lips were close to his ear, Prithee, put off your journey until sunrise, and sleep in your own bed tonight. A lone woman is troubled with such dreams and such thoughts that she's afeard of herself sometimes. Pray, tarry with me this night, dear husband, of all nights of the year. My love and my faith— replied young Goodman Brown, of all nights in the year, this one night 
must I tarry away from thee? My journey, as thou callst it forth and back again, must needs be done twixt now and sunrise. What, my sweet, pretty wife, dost thou doubt me already? And we but three months married. Then God bless you, said Faith, with the pink ribbons. And may you find all well when you come back. Amen, cried Goodman Brown. Say thy prayers, dear Faith, and go to bed at dusk. No harm will come to thee. And so they parted, and the young man pursued his way until, being about to turn the corner by the meeting-house, he looked back and saw the head of Faith still peeping after him with a melancholy air in spite of her pink ribbons. Poor little Faith, thought he, for his heart smote him. What a wretch am I to leave her on such an errand? She talks of dreams, too. Methought, as she spoke, there was trouble in her face, as if a dream had warned her what work is to be done to-night. But no, no, t'would kill her to think it. Well, she's a blessed angel on earth, and after this one night I'll cling to her skirts and follow her to heaven. With this excellent resolve for the future, Goodman Brown felt himself justified in making more haste on his present evil purpose. He had taken a dreary road, darkened by all the gloomiest trees of the forest, which barely stood aside to let the narrow path creep through, and closed immediately behind. It was all— as lonely as could be, and there is this peculiarity in such a solitude, that the traveller knows not who may be concealed by the innumerable trunks and the thick boughs overhead, so that, with lonely footsteps, he may yet be passing through an unseen multitude. There may be a devilish Indian behind every tree— said Goodman Brown to himself, and he glanced fearfully behind him as he added, "'What if the devil himself should be at my very elbow?' His head being turned back, he passed a crook of the road, and looking forward again beheld the figure of a man in grave and decent attire, seated at the foot of an old tree. He arose at Goodman Brown's approach and walked onward, side by side with him. "'You are late, Goodman Brown,' said he. "'The clock of the Old South was striking as I came through Boston, "'and that is full fifteen minutes agone.' Uh, "'Faith it kept me back a while,' replied the young man, "'with a tremor in his voice caused by the sudden appearance of his companion, "'though not wholly unexpected. It was now deep dusk in the forest, and deepest in that part of it where these two were journeying. As nearly as could be discerned, the second traveller was about fifty years old, apparently in the same rank of life as Goodman Brown, and bearing a considerable resemblance to him, though perhaps more in expression than in features. Still, they might have been taken for father and son— and yet, though the elder person was as simply clad as the younger, and as simple in manner too, he had an indescribable air of one who knew the world. 
and who would not have felt abashed at the governor's dinner-table, or in King William's court were it possible that his affairs should call him thither. But the only thing about him that could be fixed upon as remarkable was his staff, which bore the likeness of a great black snake, so curiously wrought that it might almost be seen to twist and wriggle itself like a living serpent. This, of course, must have been an ocular deception, assisted by the uncertain light. "'Come, Goodman Brown,' cried his fellow-traveller, "'this is a dull pace for the beginning of a journey. Take my staff, if you're so soon weary.' "'Friend,' said the other, exchanging his slow pace for a full stop, "'having kept covenant by meeting thee here, it is my purpose now to return, whence I came. I have scruples touching the matter thou wotst of.' "'Sayest thou so?' replied he of the serpent, smiling apart. "'Let us walk on, nevertheless, reasoning as we go, and if I convince thee not—' thou shalt turn back. We are but a little way in the forest yet. Too far, too far, exclaimed the goodman, unconsciously resuming his walk. My father never went into the woods on such an errand, nor his father before him. We have been a race of honest men and good Christians since the days of the martyrs, and shall I be the first of the name of Brown that ever took this path and, and kept— uh, Such company, thou wouldst say? observed the elder person, interpreting his pause. "'Well said, Goodman Brown. I have been as well acquainted with your family as with ever a one among the Puritans, and that is no trifle to say. I helped your grandfather, the constable, when he lashed the Quaker woman so smartly through the streets of Salem. And it was I that brought your father a pitch-pine knot, kindled at my own hearth, to set fire to an Indian village in King Philip's war. They were my good friends, both, and many a pleasant walk have we had along this path, and return merrily after midnight. I would fain be friends with you, for their sake. If it be as Thou sayest, replied Goodman Brown, I marvel they never spoke of these matters, or verily I marvel not, seeing that the least rumor of the sort would have driven them from New England. We are a people of prayer and good works to boot, and abide no such wickedness. <laughs> wickedness or not, said the traveler with the twisted staff. I have a very general acquaintance uh, here in New England— the deacons of many a church have drunk the communion wine with me. The select men of diverse towns make me their chairman, and a majority of the great and general court are firm supporters of my interest. The governor and I, too, but these are state secrets. "'Can this be so?' cried Goodman Brown, with a stare of amazement at his undisturbed companion. "'Howbeit, I have nothing to do with the governor and council. They have their own ways, and are no rule for a simple husbandman like me. But were I to go on with thee, 
How should I meet the eye of that good old man, our minister at Salem Village? Oh, his voice would make me tremble both Sabbath day and lecture day. Thus far, the elder traveller had listened with due gravity, but now burst into a fit of irrepressible mirth, shaking himself so violently that his snake-like staff actually seemed to wriggle in sympathy. <laughs> Shouted he again and again, then composing himself. Well, <laughs> go on, <laughs> go on, Goodman Brown, go on, go on, but prithee, don't kill me with laughing. Well, then, to end the matter at once, said Goodman Brown, considerably nettled. There is my wife, Faith. It would break her dear little heart, and I'd rather break my own. Nay, if that be the case, answered the other, e'en go thy ways, Goodman Brown. I would not for twenty old women like, like the one hobbling before us that Faith should come to any harm. As he spoke, he pointed his staff at a female figure along the path in whom Goodman Brown recognized a very pious and exemplary dame who had taught him his catechism in youth and was still his moral and spiritual adviser jointly with the minister and Deacon Gookin. A marvel truly that Goody Cloys would, would be so far in the wilderness at nightfall, said he. But with your leave, friend, I shall take a cut through the woods until we have left this Christian woman behind. Being a stranger to you, she might ask whom I was consorting with and whither I was going. Mm, be it so, said his fellow traveller. Betake you to the woods and let me keep the path. Accordingly, the young man turned aside, but took care to watch his companion, who advanced softly along the road until he had come within a staff's length of the old dame. She, meanwhile, was making the best of her way with singular speed for so aged a woman, and mumbling some indistinct words, a prayer, doubtless, as she went. The traveller put forth his staff, and— touched her withered neck with what seemed the serpent's tail. "'The devil!' screamed the pious old lady. "'Then Goody Cloys knows her old friend,' observed the traveller, confronting her and leaning on his writhing stick. Ah, forsooth, and it is your worship indeed,' cried the good dame. "'Yea, truly is it, and in the very image of my old gossip Goodman Brown, the grandfather of that silly fellow that now is. But would your worship believe it? My broomstick hath strange disappeared, stolen, as I suspect, by that unhanged witch Goody Cory, and, and that too when I was all anointed with the juice of smallage and sinkafoil and wolf's bane, mingled with fine wheat and the fat of a newborn babe, said the shape of old Goodman Brown. Ah, your worship knows the recipe, cried the old lady, cackling aloud. So, as I was saying, being all ready for the meeting and no horse to ride on, I made up my mind to foot it, for they tell me there is a nice young man to be taken into communion tonight. But now your good worship will lend me your arm, and we shall be there in a twinkling. That can hardly be answered her friend. I may not spare you my arm, Goody Cloys, but here is my staff, if you will. 
So saying, he threw it down at her feet, where perhaps it assumed life, being one of the rods which its owner had formerly lent to the Egyptian magi. Of this fact, however, Goodman Brown could not take cognizance. He had cast up his eyes in astonishment, and, looking down again, beheld neither Goody Cloys nor the serpentine staff, but his fellow-traveller, alone, who waited for him as calmly as if nothing had happened. "'That old woman taught me my catechism,' said the young man. And there was a world of meaning in this simple comment. They continued to walk onward while the elder traveller exhorted his companion to make good speed and persevere in the path, discoursing so aptly that his arguments seemed rather to spring up in the bosom of his auditor than to be suggested by himself. As they went, he plucked a branch of maple to serve for a walking-stick, and began to strip it of the twigs and little boughs which were wet with evening dew. The moment his fingers touched them, they became strangely withered, and dried up as with a week's sunshine. Thus the pair proceeded, at a good free pace, until suddenly in a gloomy hollow of the road, Goodman Brown sat himself down on the stump of a tree, and refused to go any farther. "'Friend,' said he stubbornly, "'my mind is made up. Not another step will I budge on this errand.' What if a wretched old woman do choose to go to the devil when I thought she was going to heaven? Is that any reason why I should quit my dear faith and go after her? You will think better of this by and by, said his acquaintance, composedly. Sit here, rest yourself a while, and when you feel like moving again, there is my staff to help you along. Without more words, he threw his companion the maple stick, and was as speedily out of sight as if he had vanished into the deepening gloom. The young man sat a few moments by the roadside, applauding himself greatly, and thinking with how clear a conscience he should meet the minister in his morning walk, nor shrink from the eye of good old Deacon Gookin, and what calm sleep would be his that very night, which was to have been spent so wickedly, but so purely and sweetly now, in the arms of faith. Amidst these pleasant and praiseworthy meditations, Goodman Brown heard the tramp of horses along the road, and deemed it advisable to conceal himself within the verge of the forest, conscious of the guilty purpose that had brought him thither, though now so happily turned from it. On came the hoof-tramps, and the voices of the riders, two grave old voices conversing soberly as they drew near. These mingled sounds appeared to pass along the road within a few yards of the young man's hiding-place. But, knowing doubtless to the depth of the gloom at that particular spot, neither the travellers nor their steeds were visible. Though their figures brushed the small boughs by the wayside, it could not be seen that they intercepted, even for a moment, the faint gleam from the strip of bright sky athwart which they must have passed. Goodman Brown alternately crouched and stood on tiptoe, pulling aside the branches and thrusting forth his head as far as he durst, without discerning so much as a shadow. It vexed him the more, because he could have sworn, were such a thing possible, 
that he recognized the voices of the minister and Deacon Gookin jogging along quietly, as they were wont to do when bound to some ordination or ecclesiastical council, while yet within hearing one of the riders stopped to pluck a switch. "'Of the two, reverend sir,' said the voice like the deacons, "'I had rather miss an ordination dinner than tonight's meeting. "'They tell me that some of our community are to be here from Falmouth and beyond, "'and others from Connecticut and Rhode Island, besides several of the Indian Bowwells, "'who, after their fashion, know almost as much deviltry as the best of us. "'Moreover, there is a goodly young woman to be taken into communion.' "'Mighty well, Deacon Gookin,' replied the solemn old tones of the minister. "'Spur up, or we shall be late. Nothing can be done, you know, until I get on the ground.' The hooves clattered again in the voices, talking so strangely in the empty air passed on through the forest, where no church had ever been gathered or solitary Christian prayed. Whither then could these holy men be journeying so deep into the heathen wilderness? Young Goodman Brown caught hold of a tree for support, being ready to sink down on the ground, faint and overburdened with the heavy sickness of his heart. He looked up to the sky, doubting whether there really was a heaven above him, yet there was the blue arch and the stars brightening in it. "'With heaven above and faith below, I will yet stand firm against the devil!' cried Goodman Brown. While he still gazed upward into the deep arch of the firmament, and had lifted his hands to pray, a cloud, though no wind was stirring, hurried across the zenith and hid the brightening stars. The blue sky was still visible, except directly overhead where this black mass of cloud was sweeping swiftly northward. Aloft in the air, as if from the depth of the cloud, came a confused and doubtful sound of voices. Once the listener fancied that he could distinguish the accents of townspeople of his own, men and women, both pious and ungodly, many of whom he had met at the communion table and had seen others rioting at the tavern. The next moment, so indistinct were the sounds, he doubted whether he had heard aught but the murmur of the old forest whispering without a wind. Then came a stronger swell of those familiar tones heard daily at the sunrise at Salem Village, but never until now from a cloud of night there was one voice of a young woman uttering lamentations, yet with an uncertain sorrow and entreating for some favor, which perhaps it would grieve her to obtain. And all the unseen multitude, both saints and sinners, seemed to encourage her onward. "'Faith!' shouted Goodman Brown, in a voice of agony and desperation, and the echoes of the forest mocked him, crying, Faith! Faith! As if bewildered wretches were seeking her all through the wilderness. The cry of grief, rage, and terror was yet piercing the night when the unhappy husband held his breath for a response. 
There was a scream, drowned immediately in a louder murmur of voices, fading into far-off laughter as the dark clouds swept away, leaving the clear and silent sky above Goodman Brown. But something fluttered lightly down through the air and caught on the branch of a tree. The young man seized it and beheld a pink ribbon. "'My faith is gone!' cried he after one stupefied moment. "'There is no good on earth, and sin is but a name. Come, devil, for, for to thee is this world given!' And maddened with despair, so that he laughed long and loud, did Goodman Brown grasp his staff and set forth again, at such a rate that he seemed to fly along the forest path rather than to walk or run. The road grew wilder and drearier and more faintly traced and vanished at length, leaving him in the heart of the dark wilderness, still rushing onward with the instinct that guides mortal man to evil. The whole forest was peopled with frightful sounds, the creaking of the trees, the howling of wild beasts, and the yell of Indians, while sometimes the wind tolled like a distant church bell and sometimes gave a broad roar round the traveller, as if all nature were laughing him to scorn. But he was himself the chief horror of the scene, and shrank not from its other horrors." Ha, ha, ha! roared Goodman Brown when the wind laughed at him. Let us hear which will laugh loudest. Think not to frighten me with your deviltry. Come, witch, come, wizard, come, Indian powwow, come, devil himself. And here comes Goodman Brown. You may as well fear him as he fear you. In truth, all through the haunted forest, there could be nothing more frightful than the figure of Goodman Brown. On he flew among the black pines, brandishing his staff with frenzied gestures, now giving vent to an inspiration of horrid blasphemy, and now shouting forth such laughter as set all the echoes of the forest laughing like demons around him. The fiend, in his own shape, is less hideous than when he rages in the breast of man. Thus sped the demoniac on his course, until Quivering among the trees, he saw a red light before him, as when the felled trunks and branches of a clearing have been set on fire and throw up their lurid blaze against the sky at the hour of midnight. He paused in a lull of the tempest that had driven him onward and heard the swell of what seemed a hymn rolling solemnly from a distance with the weight of many voices. We knew the tune. It was a familiar one in the choir of the village meeting-house. The verse died heavily away and was lengthened by a chorus not of human voices, but of all the sounds of the benighted wilderness pealing in awful harmony together. Goodman Brown cried out, and his cry was lost to his own ear by its unison with the cry of the desert. In the interval of silence he stole forward until the light glared full upon his eyes. At one extremity of an open space, hemmed in by the dark wall of the forest, arose a rock bearing some rude natural resemblance either to an altar 
or a pulpit, and surrounded by four blazing pines, their tops aflame, their stems untouched, like candles at an evening meeting. The mass of foliage that had overgrown the summit of the rock was all on fire, blazing high into the night and fitfully illuminating the whole field. Each pendant twig and leafy festoon was in a blaze. As the red light arose and fell, a numerous congregation alternately shone forth, then disappeared in shadow, and again grew, as it were, out of the darkness, peopling the heart of the solitary woods at once. "'A grave and dark-clad company,' quoth Goodman Brown. In truth, they were such, among them quivering to and fro between gloom and splendor, appeared faces that would be seen next day at the council board of the province, and others which Sabbath after Sabbath looked devoutly heavenward and benignantly over the crowded pews from the holiest pulpits in the land, some affirmed that the lady of the governor was there. At least there were high dames well known to her, and wives of honored husbands and widows, a great multitude and ancient maidens, all of excellent repute and fair young girls, who trembled lest their mothers should espy them. Either the sudden gleam of light flashing over the obscure field bedazzled Goodman Brown, or he recognized a score of the church members of Salem Village, famous for their especial sanctity. Good old Deacon Gookin had arrived, and waited at the skirts of that venerable saint, his reverend pastor, but irreverently consorting with these grave, reputable, and pious people, these elders of the church, these chaste dames and dewy virgins, there were men of dissolute lives and women of spotted fame, wretches given over to mean and filthy vice, and suspected even of horrid crimes. It was strange to see that the good shrank not from the wicked, nor were the sinners abashed by the saints. Scattered also among their pale-faced enemies were the Indian priests or powwows, who had often scared their native forest with more hideous incantations than any known to English witchcraft. But where is faith? Goodman Brown, and as hope came into his heart, he trembled. Another verse of the hymn arose, a slow and mournful strain, such as the pious love, but joined to words which expressed all that our nature can conceive of sin, and darkly hinted at far more. Unfathomable to mere mortals is the lore of fiends— Verse after verse was sung, and still the chorus of the desert swelled between like the deepest tone of a mighty organ, and with the final peal of that dreadful anthem there came a sound, as if the roaring wind, the rushing streams, the howling beasts, and every other voice of the unconcerted wilderness were mingling and according with the voice of guilty man in homage to the prince of all. The four blazing pines threw up a loftier flame, and obscurely discovered shapes and visages of horror on the smoke wreaths above the impious assembly. At the same moment, 
The fire on the rock shot redly forth and formed a glowing arch above its base, where now appeared a figure. With reverence be it spoken, the figure bore no slight similitude in both garb and manner to some grave divine of the New England churches. "'Bring forth the converts!' cried a voice that echoed through the field and rolled into the forest. At the word, Goodman Brown stepped forth from the shadow of the trees and approached the congregation, with whom he felt a loathful brotherhood, by the sympathy of all that was wicked in his heart. He could have well-nigh sworn that the shape of his own dead father beckoned him to advance, looking downward from a smoke-wreath, while a woman with dim features of despair threw out her hand to warn him back. Was it his mother? But he had no power to retreat one step, nor to resist, even in thought, when the minister and good old deacon Gookin seized his arms and led him to the blazing rock. Thither came also the slender form of a veiled female, led between Goody Cloys, that pious teacher of the catechism, and Martha Carrier, who had received the devil's promise to be queen of hell. A rampant hag was she, and there stood the proselytes beneath the canopy of fire. "'Welcome, my children,' said the dark figure to the communion of your race. "'Ye have found thus young your nature and your destiny. My children, look behind you.' They turned and flashing forth, as it were, in a sheet of flame, the fiend worshippers were seen. The smile of welcome gleamed darkly on every visage. There, resumed the sable form, are all whom ye have reverenced from youth. Ye deemed them holier than yourselves, and shrank from your own sin, contrasting it with their lives of righteousness and prayerful aspirations heavenward. Yet here they all are, in my worshipful assembly. This night it shall be granted you to know their secret deeds, how hoary-bearded elders of the church have whispered wanton words to the young maids of their households, how many a woman eager for widow's weeds has given her husband a drink at bedtime and let him sleep his last sleep in her bosom. How beardless youths have made haste to inherit their father's wealth, and how fair damsels, blush not sweet ones, have dug little graves in their garden, and bidden me the sole guest to an infant's funeral. By the sympathy of your human hearts, for sin ye shall send out all the places, whether in church, bedchamber, street, field, or forest, where crime has been committed, and shall exult to behold the whole earth, one stain of guilt, one mighty blood-spot. Far more than this, it shall be yours to penetrate in every bosom 
the deep mystery of sin, the fountain of all wicked arts, and which inexhaustibly supplies more evil impulses than human power, than my power at its utmost can make manifests in deeds. And now, my children, look upon each other. And they did so, and by the blaze of the hell-kindled torches the wretched man beheld his faith, and the wife her husband, trembling before that unhallowed altar. Lo, there ye stand, my children, said the figure in a deep and solemn tone, almost sad, with its despairing awfulness, as if his once angelic nature could yet mourn for our miserable race. Depending upon one another's hearts, he had still hoped that virtue were not all a dream. <laughs> now, ye are undeceived. Evil is the nature of mankind. Evil must be your only happiness. Welcome again, my children, to the communion of your race. "'Welcome!' repeated the fiend-worshippers in one cry of despair and triumph. And there they stood, the only pair, as it seemed, who were yet hesitating on the verge of wickedness in this dark world. A basin was hollowed naturally in the rock. Did it contain water reddened by the lurid light, or was it blood, or perchance a liquid flame?' Herein did the shape of evil dip his hand, and prepare to lay the mark of baptism upon their foreheads, that they might be partakers of the mystery of sin, more conscious of the secret guilt of others, both in deed and thought, than they could now be of their own. The husband cast one look at his pale wife, and faith at him. What? Polluted wretches, with the next glance, show them to each other, shuddering alike at what they disclosed and what they saw. Faith! Faith! cried the husband. Look up to heaven and resist the wicked one! Whether Faith obeyed, he knew not. Hardly had he spoken when he found himself amid calm night and solitude, listening to a roar of the wind which died heavily away through the forest. He staggered against the rock and felt it chill and damp, while a hanging twig that had been all on fire besprinkled his cheek with the coolest dew. The next morning young Goodman Brown came slowly into the street of Salem Village, staring around him like a bewildered man. The good old minister was taking a walk along the graveyard to get an appetite for breakfast and meditate his sermon, and bestowed a blessing as he passed on Goodman Brown. He shrank from the venerable saint as if to avoid an anathema. Old Deacon Gookin was at domestic worship, and the holy words of his prayer were heard through the open window. What 
God doth the wizard pray to, quoth Goodman Brown. Goody Cloys, that excellent old Christian, stood in the early sunshine at her own lattice, catechizing a little girl who had brought her a pint of morning's milk. Goodman Brown snatched away the child, as from the grasp of the fiend himself. Turning the corner by the meeting-house, he spied the head of faith with the pink ribbons, gazing anxiously forth, and bursting into such joy at the sight of him that she skipped along the street and almost kissed her husband before the whole village. But Goodman Brown looked sternly and sadly into her face, and passed on without a greeting. Had Goodman Brown fallen asleep in the forest and only dreamed a wild dream of a witch-meeting? Be it so, if you will, but, alas, it was a dream of evil omen for young Goodman Brown, a stern, a sad, a darkly meditative, a distrustful, if not a desperate man, did he become from the night of that fearful dream. On the Sabbath day, when the congregation were singing a holy psalm, he could not listen, because an anthem of sin rushed loudly upon his ear and drowned all the blessed strain. When the minister spoke from the pulpit with power and fervid eloquence, and with his hand on the open Bible of the sacred truths of our religion, and of saint-like lives and triumphant deaths, and of future bliss, or of misery unutterable, then did Goodman Brown turn pale, dreading lest the roof should thunder down upon the grey blasphemer in his hearers. Often, waking suddenly at midnight, he shrank from the bosom of faith. And at morning, or eventide, when the family knelt down at prayer, he scowled and muttered to himself and gazed sternly at his wife and turned away. And when he had lived long, and was born to his grave a hoary corpse, followed by faith, an aged woman, and children, and grandchildren, a goodly procession, besides neighbors not a few. They carved no hopeful verse upon his tombstone, for his dying hour was gloom. That was Nathaniel Hawthorne's Young Goodman Brown, as read by our dear friend and founding host, the late Lawrence Santoro. Although known for his horror writing and as the founding host of Tales to Terrify, Larry Santoro was widely known and loved in the Chicago theater scene as an amicable and talented man about town. 
He worked as a director, actor, casting director, and dramaturge in theater and television, until finding his distinct voice as a writer of dark fiction. Larry's written and spoken work was the winner of numerous awards in the dark fiction and horror genres, including a 2001 Stoker Award nomination for his novella, God Screamed and Screamed, Then I Ate Him. Also Stoker-nominated was Larry's 2002 audio drama adaptation of Gene Wolfe's The Tree Is My Hat, starring Neil Gaiman and P.D. Kasich. His first novel, Just North of Nowhere, was published in 2007, and a collection of his short fiction, Drink for the Thirst to Come, was published in 2011. He continued to work on several pieces until his death from cancer in July of 2014. He was 71. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. For our second story, Scott Silk reached way back to episode 69, in which we hear a fresh-voiced young talent named Stephen Kilpatrick provide his first approved narration. The story? One by O.D. Gray. I'd like to read you a quick note from the author that Scott received on contacting Gray for inclusion in this episode. Gray writes, Stephen Kilpatrick and I joined together for our first experience with Tales to Terrify. While I am grateful for this third opportunity, Stephen has been the mainstay of the show since taking over for the late Lawrence Santoro, doing a fantastic job as host. I wish him all the best in his next endeavors. Thank you, Ori. Couldn't have said it better myself. Now a bit about the author. Still enjoying Arizona sunshine and still exploring the dark side of the human condition, O.D. Higre has published an anthology of his short stories. The volume is entitled Something's Been Brewing and is available at Amazon.com. It's just tearing me all apart 
and its theme of revenge is included, along with another twenty-nine tales delving into the true nature of reality, messing with Mother Nature, human arrogance, unintended consequences, karmic justice, and the debilitating nature of belief. In addition, Ori has published a novel and a novella in the series The Cousins, also available at Amazon. Quoting one of the work's protagonists, Filled with hubris, man never seriously considers the possibility of something on this planet of greater intelligence than himself. Perhaps best described as an erotic crime thriller, the series offers a new look at the myth of vampirism. Links to all of these works will be in the show notes. Now, please join me for O.D. He Grace. It's just tearing me all apart. Originally aired on Tales to Terrify, Episode 69. The strains of Puccini's La Boheme floated on the cold night air. From the porch's edge, two hundred yards of tree-lined driveway stretched to the main road. And then, nothing. For miles, not one other living soul. He didn't hunt them. He just waited for God to bring them to him. Frederick Molinari waited patiently to serve. Each of them sung God's praises under Frederick's tutelage. Pain was an integral part of their training. Frederick pulled the collar of his jacket up against the wind. After all these years, he could still hear the old priest whispering in his ear. Suffering is the way to joy, the father had said. Those hours in the rectory served their purpose. In the end, the young choir boy became a very good pupil. It's the path to salvation, Frederick always told him. Frederick leaned up against the rail. He was again doing God's work, and he found it completely reasonable that in their agony he might achieve some pleasure while toiling in God's name. None of them ever disagreed. Pain. Endure the pain and find the joy. The words of the cleric seemed carried on the wind, and Frederick's mind wandered into the more recent past, to another night of Puccini. For days, Frederick had felt God's calling and hadn't touched his meds. Puccini's melodies were magical, and with them he had learned to control the stifling effects of the medication, to the point where the maestro's music allowed him to retrieve a life. And with the music came the voices. Sono un poeta. Who am I? The music of the first act of Lobohim echoed through the house. 
The knock on the door had come as he scribbled in one of his journals. De Grazia, he heard. Please, can you help me? The voice asked. He opened the door. A young woman stood in the glare of the porch light. The snowflakes fell like a veil between them. Mimi, he thought. May I use your phone? My car's got a flat and my cell's not working out here. Me see spento illum, he heard. He brought a finger to his throat. Sure, you must be freezing, and he stepped aside. She galita manina, he heard. Man, that weather came up fast. Life abounds with surprises, Frederick thought as he closed her in from the outside world. No gloves. She blew on her reddened hands. He watched her eyes widen as he again moved his hand to his throat. Maybe a couple of inches tonight. He paused for a moment, trying to steady his nerves. They say we need more cell towers out here. Reception's always touch and go, they say. She stared at him. Throat cancer. He tapped his ostomy. Sorry, mister, didn't mean to. The phone is over here. Frederick walked to the credenza. I just can't thank you enough. I won't be long. It's not me you need to thank, he thought. Chisan? She paced, the receiver glued to her ear, small, framed, not more than thirty, he figured. She bella bambina. She was beautiful, and her eyes. Du ladre. Those beautiful eyes. Gli occhi belli. The eyes. Sorry, mister, my friend isn't answering. I need to call for a tow and a cab. They do have cabs out here, don't they? Frederick could see the anxiety in her eyes. Those eyes. She fussed in her purse. Can I borrow your phone book? I'll only be a few, then wait out in my car. The first act was finishing. Oh, so Ava, Fensiula filled his head. Rodolfo and me meet off together to Café Momus in love. Frederick plays it again in his mind. Lo ti amo, he says. Excuse me? She turns to look at him. I'm sorry, never mind. His hand shaking, affecting his voice. I'll make the call for you. It's too cold out there. You can wait in here till we see the lights of the cab. He hasn't seen a cab out here in five years. Can I get you something to drink while we wait, Mimi? He asks. What? Mimi? Who's Mimi? He's getting all confused now. They are at Momus, aren't they? Here to drink and have a good time? God, she is so beautiful, and maybe when they get back to his flat. Well, she had said wait and see. In his head, again, he hears, Curioso, curioso. He can't wait any longer. He reaches out. Hey, what the... Now you listen. He steps closer. Air sputters from his tracheostoma. It can't be helped. He needs both hands. Quivering, they grasp her blouse. Stop! Stop, you fucking freak! What is that? There is terror in her voice. Clearly a mezzo. With his training, she should be able to hit the high A if enough pressure is applied. Oh, Jesus, no! It'll be beautiful and he can feel a further stirring in his loins. Please, please, oh dear God, no, don't! It's a start. She will have more to say and sing to the Lord before it's over. But it's a good start and he brings the hammer down along the side of her head. 
The wind pushed at him, drawing Frederick back from his reverie, but the late-night visitor dwelled in his memory. It had been a struggle, but with his help she had, indeed, exceeded his vocal expectations. The unique tonal quality of her outbursts, the harmonic spectra of her extended shrieks and screams were so deeply sensual to his ear that he kept her for two days longer than any of his previous pupils. In the end, Frederick accepted the young woman's testament of faith and then, begging to return to her maker, he had obliged. He looked up into the heavens. She was home, safe, and he had his memories, plus a bit more. For a moment, the strains of Sheikh Galida Manina clouded his mind and his thoughts drifted to what lay safe in the back of his freezer. And, and he had the eyes, too. Drops of rain played on the porch roof. The temperature had fallen, sleet for sure, maybe snow, Frederick thought as he moved inside. The air burgeoned with the aroma of freshly brewing herbal tea. Frederick decided to replay the first act. He carefully placed the needle on the rotating disc. The Italian Ministry of Arts recorded the performance, his first and last appearance at La Scala, six months before tests revealed the cancer. The record was his only copy. A fire, years before, destroyed his collection. That made it so special. Frederick sipped the tea. He just couldn't get Catherine Wallace out of his mind. She was special as well, and he knew why. Not because she found God during her tribulation. There were so many others. And not because he'd taken tokens to her testimony. His freezer overflowed. She had given more. Take this in remembrance of me. She was a part of him, literally. When he tried, he was sure he could feel her in his bones, his fingers, his toes. The strains of Puccini's La Boheme again filled the room. It's the first act when Mimi knocks on the door of Rodolfo's garret. A bell rings. He sits up. Again, the dissonance of the doorbell clashes with the music. What the... Frederick makes his way to the entertainment center and turns down the volume. Knocking replaces the bell. He moves cautiously towards the door. The bell rings again. He draws the curtain aside, ever so slightly. A woman. A bead of sweat trails down his back. Apprehension, accompanied by fear? Joy? Mimi? Foolishness. No way. Yet, a young woman? A gift on a cold, wintry night? Praise the Lord. He opens the door. A rush of cold air pushes him back. Regaining his balance, Frederick squints in the bright light of the porch lamp. She stands there. He is looking into those eyes again, and his knees buckle slightly. Frederick holds his hand to his throat and opens his mouth. Mimi? Then the world explodes. Frederick's brain pounded behind his eyes. The lids felt like sandpaper scraping across his corneas as he raised them. Someone stood before him. He wanted to rub the grit from his eyes, but he couldn't move his hands. Either of them, then Frederick felt wetness on his forehead, fluid sliding down his face. He stuck out his tongue. Water, thank the Lord. His mouth felt so dry, his cheeks clung to his teeth. That's quite a little instrument you have, Mr. Molinari. Quick now, there's more coming. His tongue moved right, then left. The coolness of the water brought more relief. She knew his name. How? 
His vision cleared, and he could see her now. It was Mimi. It was. There it is again, my friend. The wetness left his forehead. Water rained down on his bare chest as she twisted the wet towel over him. The dead giveaway. I knew you were the one when you opened the door. The look on your face, like you were seeing someone from the grave. Laughing, she pulled up a chair in front of him. No, you're not seeing dead people, you miserable piece of shit. Twins were identical twins, you fuck. The woman looked away for a moment, then turned back. Twins until you took her from me. He could see tears. It had to be true. She had Mimi's eyes, and his thoughts flashed to his back room. He had Mimi's eyes, too, and for a moment he couldn't help smiling. He wanted to speak, but he looked down at the straps that bound his hands and feet to the recliner. A plastic tube ran down his forearm, taped at his elbow and again at his wrist. He knew an intravenous line when he saw one. All those months of chemo. You want to have a little conversation? You have a voice prosthesis, right? He nodded. No problem. And she moved closer to him, placing her finger over his tracheostoma. For a moment, he hesitated. What to say? Sorry, to start. Then, an explanation? No, uh, denial. Of course, deny everything. I don't know who you are. I don't know why you're in my house. Frederick's chest heaved as he drew in more air. I don't know who, more air, this twin you're talking about. Maintain a calm demeanor, he told himself. Take whatever you want. I won't call the police. Just leave me alone. Please. He drew out the last word. It really sounded quite pitiful, he thought. The woman leaned back in her chair, shaking her head. I had a look around while you napped. You fashion yourself as some sort of dark angel of God, and here you are, lying through that sucking hole in your scrawny neck. Her body came crashing forward. That's Catherine's car out back, near the lake. Bet if I had found you in the spring, her old Malibu would rest at the bottom of the marsh with God knows what else. The woman leaned back, rotating her head about her shoulders. He could hear the vertebrae of her neck cracking. It took a week before I remembered. Catherine made that call. I couldn't take it. But that night she had my old iPhone. Suddenly the woman shoved something shiny and black up into his face. I found it in her car. Probably couldn't get service out here with all the weather that night she went missing. She ended up at your house to make that call, I figure. More bad luck for my girl. Did you know that all cell phones have GPS tracking capability? He watched as she scanned the room. Probably not. Phonograph, landline phone and all. Looks like you're still stuck in the 20th century, Frederick. She raised her lips, showing her teeth as she drew out his name. I have special software downloaded to my phone. If it's on, I can track it. These babies send out pings. ISPs keep records of those pings. My little phone kept crying out because Catherine left it plugged in. When the weather got better, reception improved. My phone kept on pinging till the car battery gave out. The provider identified the general area based on the location of the nearest cell tower. I picked it up from there. It took me a while to find you. You never noticed the phone, did you? The woman waved the little black box again. You wouldn't have recognized it anyway, would you, Frederick? That's the trouble living in the past, my friend. You get stupid real fast. Of course, Catherine wasn't the brightest light in the room either. 
leaving her phone charger plugged in, but that little mistake has brought us together. The woman leaned forward, waving an open book in his face. I found all your journals, Frederick. This one contains Catherine's tribulation, as you phrase it, and I quote, She was more receptive than most, quickly developing proper breath support, prolongation of the vowels, and shaping of the throat. She produced the extra frequencies above 3,000 hertz that are so satisfying to my ear. Her outbursts of anguish transformed themselves into melodies. The success of screams and shrieks became the music that allowed my deepest sexual urges to manifest. Her blue eyes burned into his. You are really one fucked up bastard. Frederick tried to speak, but air just escaped through his stoma. He wanted to explain to the woman how he helped Catherine find her God, how the woman needed to remember. It was God that brought Catherine out here, out here to him. I know you have things to say, and you will get your chance, but I already have a pretty good idea about you, Mr. Molinari. Like I said, I had to look around. Risperdone, carbamazepine, eripiprazole, I'm guessing, schizophrenia. Not much of a guess, really. Most of your kind aren't prone to violence. Obviously, you are an exception to the rule. There are always exceptions, aren't there, Frederick? We all think we are exceptional, when in reality, we are just exceptions. He watched as she fiddled with the plastic bags that hung on the rack above his head. This is going to take a while, but don't worry. You won't miss a thing. I have a stimulant for when you lose consciousness. I want you to remember our experience together, Frederick. I just added a hyperalgesic agent to your saline drip. It's a nociceptor agonist. Sorry, a lot of gobbledygook. It makes your nervous system more sensitive. You'll appreciate its effects a little later. Frederick waited. He didn't feel anything different. Just bullshit, he thought. A famous tenor, at least by your collection of memorabilia, Never heard of you, myself, but then I'm not into that highbrow stuff. Neither was Catherine. We're country gals, yahoo. He jumped. The bindings on his wrists and ankles cut into his skin, bringing tears to his eyes. What did she say again? A Jesus or something? Your langerial cancer cut the opera act short. Too bad. So sad. She paused for a moment. Her smile broadened. Or should I say, too bad, so dissad? She was laughing now. But it definitely seems you found yourself another gig, Frederick. She leaned over and slapped his bare knee. My dear Frederick, I think I'm going to call you Marquis from now on. It seems so appropriate. Monsieur Marquis Molinari dissad. She tilted her head towards the entertainment center. I appreciate your passion for opera. The first act of La Boheme was again ending. The strains of the marching band pounded in his head. It makes your nervous system more sensitive. But that's the past, Marquis. And like I said, I'm a country girl. You don't mind, do you? Suddenly, the woman disappeared. From the other side of the room, the screech of the needle etching its way across his prized possession made his ears burn. Oops, sorry. You could hear the scanner picking up station after station. A bit of rock, a bit of Latin, a bit of news, a bit... Perfect. Some god-awful twanging shit-kicker, groaning on about his green tractor. At that moment, Frederick felt sure she couldn't cause him more pain.
They say a woman's capacity to orgasm is unlimited. She had returned. The non-sequitur had him totally confused. What the hell was she talking about? Personally, my record stands at four. Catherine was no starry-eyed new girl. She knew her way around a... Well, let's just say she knew her way. But then, I didn't have you, did I? I know we'll be setting a new record tonight. Yeehaw! Frederick could only shake his head. By the way, my name is Tissaphone. It's Greek. Catherine said it was geek, so she called me Tissy. I'm a psychiatric nurse at the state hospital. That's why I carry the taser. Got to be ready with that crowd. It's where they will take you once I finished here. You can bet on that. Frederick watched as a woman began to unbutton her blouse. I've worked down there at the regional treatment center for 15 years. Do I look that old? 40? Do I really look that old, my dear Marquis? The woman had moved to the mirror over the bureau. She was running her fingers through her hair. Her blouse lay on the floor along with her jeans. Frederick shook her head in disbelief. Mimi was just 27. He had Catherine's wallet somewhere. This tissy looks uncannily like Mimi. But it couldn't be her. He tried to clear his head. The Wallace woman, tender bits sautéed in herb-garlic butter sauce. The thing with its back to him couldn't be Mimi's twin, either. Unless she was lying about her age. But what woman ever adds years to their age? Crazy. Just crazy. It wears off on you, after a while. The woman rambled on, pacing back and forth. Nobody's perfect, you know. And when you're exposed to the extravagances of the mind, well, some of that just finds its way into the little cracks, and before you know it, a lock has been jimmied and a door opened. Down to her brawn panties, T.C. rummaged in her purse. She pulled out something purple with a cord extending from it. Frederick recognized it as some sort of electronic gear. A bright silver object about the size of an egg dangled at the cord's end. A buzzing broke the silence, and the silver egg began to dance in the air. Then it stopped. The buzzing began again, rose in pitch, then stopped. Then began again. With each cycle, the egg jumped to and fro at the end of the three-foot tether. The woman smiled, then grabbed the shining orb and began running her tongue over its surface. For a moment, Frederick imagined her at the beach, enjoying a summer treat. With her free hand, she pulled at her panties. They fell to her ankles. He watched as the glistening orb disappeared up between her thighs. She never took her eyes from him. The buzzing began again, and the lids of her eyes faltered a little, then closed for a few seconds. When they opened, he understood everything. I lied, Monsieur Marquis. I guess you'd realize that by now. Not twins. No, lovers. Though born of different parents, we bore an uncanny resemblance physically, and we had a similar perspective on life as well. We lived for sex and thrived on pain, used it to enhance our lovemaking. Neither of us could get the big O without the other's tears. Catherine was satisfied with that, I think, but me? Well, I'm an exception, like you, Marquis. I'm never quite satisfied, always seeking the next level. Again, like you, I think I'm an exception. You watched T.C. fiddle behind her back. Her bra fell to the floor. 
Large breasts sprayed out on her chest. They were Mimi's breasts. He remembered them, their splendor. He could hear the vibrator pulsing as T.C. played with her nipples, just the way he had with her lovers. After sufficient encouragement, Catherine had feigned pleasure in his advances, but this one had no compunction about revealing her enjoyment, kneading, then pulling on her flesh while he hummed in unison with the pulsing vibrator inside her. Oh, Marquis, my friend, I'm a sicko just like you. I cheated on Catherine at times with some of the inmates. Not the women, but the men. Oh, we both hated men, but I found they could be delightful sexual partners when they were screaming. Frederick watched as her body tensed, then shuddered for a few seconds. Her head rolled about her shoulders with eyes half-closed. A dribble of saliva edged its way down from the corner of her mouth. Her eyelids took seconds to fully open. There, you see, Marquis, with my little purple friend playing away, I can get a buzz just talking about it. She sat in front of him again. You're one of us, Frederick. Something just sits there, inside, dormant in your youth, waiting. It needs a mentor for the awakening. Mine was a teacher. Catherine's? An uncle. Marquis? He closed his eyes to hers. You rationalize your deviant behavior with your fantasy as an angel of God. I'm guessing a priest? Frederick can hear it again, the old man whispering in his ear. Endure the pain, the voice says, and find the joy. It's another's agony that you desire. You relish in the pain and suffering of others, building on it for your own sexual gratification. It's one of the clinically defined paraphilia. Are you familiar with that term? I'm sure sadomasochism rings a bell. For Catherine and me, our classification is peakerism. Peaker, to prick, to poke, to insert, to probe with sharp instruments. The woman stared at him, her eyebrow flicking up and down. Then she was gone. I'm not going to kill you, Marquis. Just going to make sure you can never do what you did to Catherine to anyone else. I'm not worried about the authorities. They won't focus on what I have done to you when they get to look at your own handiwork. Once they see what's back there in your freezer, dig up your yard and drain the back marsh. Don't you agree, Marquis? She was back. You watched the gym bag drop at her feet. Now let's get down to business. We are out here in nowhere land. Noise is not an issue. At times, during the process, I'll take a break and help you express yourself as we discuss our dear Catherine. But for me to be effective, I need both hands, so you won't be able to speak while I work. But you feel free to make all the noise you must. As I said, I do so much love the sounds of my sexual partners. She was smiling, and Frederick could hear the vibrator. First a slow churning that increased to a high pitch, then pulsed for a few seconds, and stopped. Then the cycle began again. In his mind he could see the little silver egg trapped inside her, screaming again and again as it tried to free itself. He felt himself slide back, the recliner leveling out. He realized for the first time he was completely naked. We'll start down here. He could see T.C. pointing to his bare feet. A new voice from the radio rang out into the room. Oh, this is a great song, just perfect for us, Marquis. 
TC bent over. He recognized the sound of a zipper. Then Frederick saw the shears, about 12 inches long, shiny with dark leather handles. For later, she said. They're from my greenhouse. She held up two objects, each hanging from an electrical cord. A cauterizer. The tube-like structure dropped from his view. The second metal object looked like a pizza cutter. A bone saw. It clattered on the floor. Now these. TC held up something silvery, stainless steel with long handles. It looked like a bolt cutter. Are from the OR. And she sat the thing down. Frederick was squirming now. Do you remember your Greek mythology, Marquis, my boy? He could feel her breath on the back of his neck, or could it be the wind again whispering in his ear? Tisiphone was one of the Irenes, the goddesses of retribution. Suffering is the way to joy, he heard. Here you are bringing people to your god in your own sick way, and in the end what does God do? Brings the goddess of vengeance right to your door. Pain, endure the pain, something whispered in his ear. Find the joy. He had held his water as long as he could. He felt his face redden as the urine pooled on the leather beneath him. He looked down at the yellowing cloth that covered his privates. She was a nurse. She had expected this. If you're ready, Frederick, I think I'll start with these. With his head cradled between her knees, he couldn't see what she held. She gave out a slight groan and whimper as the vibrator cycled into the pulsating mode. He tried to yell out, but only drops of mucus sputtered up from the hole in his neck, mixing with the tears streaming down his face. The woman on the radio was now singing, I wish we never met. He felt TC's whole body shudder as the sound of the vibrator picked up its pace. There'd be nothing to forget. He looked at the thin cord that snaked its way upwards to the tuft of her pubic hair seemed to dance in rhythm to the vibrations. Nothing to accept, nothing to regret. Now she was at his side, bending over him. He forced his chin against his chest and peered downward. You're not one to be forgiven. TC's large breasts swayed in front of him, her long nipples pointing downwards at his toes. Just let live and go on living. Suddenly her hands were at his feet, her fingers pulling apart the toes of his right foot. We'll start with these. He saw the nippers embrace his little toe. I know I broke your heart, the voice on the radio warbled, and the first scream fully formed in his brain. Now it's all tearing me apart. That was O.D. Grays. It's just tearing me all apart. As read by our one and only Stephen Kilpatrick. Stephen Kilpatrick, as I'm sure you know, is the former host of Tales to Terrify. 
He works supporting assistive technologies for special education students and is currently working towards a role in information assurance. I know I speak for many of us, both at Tales to Terrify and our listeners abroad, when I say thank you, Stephen, for your passion, for your dedication, and for your perseverance in bringing these frightful tales to life week after week. I so look forward to continue to hear from you down the road. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. Thank you, as always, to our amazing editors, Scott Silk and Seth Williams. Without their constant dedication and hard work, this show wouldn't be possible, and your dreams would risk being a little too pleasant, shall we say. And thank you, as always, to Josh Lightsey for web design and Diane Severson for our theme music. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. I look forward to seeing you again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify, as we journey northward and see what deadly delights we can dig up along the way. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.